Happy Monday. It's confession time. I've been running away from this subject for a while and I feel like now it's time to just hit it face on. This week we're going to talk about homelessness. And I know you might think to yourself, what on earth does homelessness have to do with beauty? Well, I will tell you. Did you know that there was a law on the books called the Ugly Law? Yeah, there was. And it was strictly enforced. Interestingly enough, um, I don't want to give too much away right now, but we're going to talk about it for sure. I know that some of these things from the Ugly Law still take place to this very day. And even though the ugly law isn't still a thing per se, it is still, it's be, it's ripple effect has been prevalent. So we're going to talk about it. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this, hmm, ah. Uh. Oof. Real episode of Beauty Reform School. Oh, hi. You stumbled across Beauty Reform School, the podcast that explores beauty, style, reinvention, self-care, all from the perspective of the outside looking in. We pick apart the classics so we can confidently break the mold. And I'm your host, Bad Bad, the artist, the educator, the retail grunt, the problem child, the one who's done it the hard way for decades, and now I'm passing the savings on to you. So bring me your tired, your confused, your weirdos, your others yearning to breathe free. If this sounds like you, grab your pen and grab your scratch pad and let's figure this crap out together. Right here at Beauty Reform School. Before we get started, I just wanted to catch up with you a little bit, let you know how things were going. I have just completed week two of being back in the workplace. Everything does, everything still hurts, but not as bad as before. I'm beginning to get a little bit of a routine, getting a little bit easier to get up and out in the mornings, although it still is quite uncomfortable, but it is what it is. Um, the mood is improving. We are feeling a little more comfortable again with our actual tasks and our roles at work. So that's good. But I got to tell you, now that two weeks and some change has gone by, I'm not going to lie. I still like being at home. That has not changed. It's just, I've just accepted my circumstances. And maybe later in life, uh, I will be able to work from home. Um, But for now, you do what you have to do. 
and I have done a few shows out in the fresh air, out in the open, still not comfortable doing an inside gig yet, but one step at a time and the band is back to rehearsing. So I feel like I'm not going to, of course, I'm not going to use the phrase back to normal, but I have gotten a big dose of familiarity and I have felt a transition. I have felt a transition from life, you know, from pandemic life inside and being isolated and all that kind of stuff. So I've definitely felt a transition and a change, a shift, if you will. Um, Having gotten that out of the way, I also wanted to point out that the reason that I wanted to do this episode in the very, very first place is because where I work we have a lot of situation with homeless people day in, day out. I have been cursed out. I have been threatened. I have been yelled at. Um, and even near my home, I had an incident not that long ago where someone was camped out on the porch for like two weeks uh, next door to me. And that was that was difficult. <laughs> that was difficult. Um I I went through a lot of feelings over that and a lot of emotions. I didn't know how to handle it. And when I asked for assistance, the answers I got were not that great. And yes, it did get to the point where um, I had considered calling the police, but I was conflicted about that. Um, Luckily, my landlady handled it and I thank her for that. But It just made me think when it was all said and done, just, is this just going to be a cycle? Is it just going to happen again? How do we fix this as a city? How do we fix this as a country? Um, I want the best for people who are struggling with homelessness. Um, At the same time, I'd like to feel safe. And I'd like to help, but only if I feel that it is going to be productive help. Um, I don't want to just hand someone a burger or, you know, give them a card with a number on it um, if I don't feel like that's helpful, you know? So it just made me think that I really wanted to look into this topic some more. And then when I came across The Ugly Law, then I knew that we had an episode. So... Here we go. One of the main reasons I've avoided this subject for so long is because I wanted to approach it respectfully and intelligently. Now I know that a lot of us separate into different teams when it comes to homelessness. Some people want it out of sight and out of mind. Some people want to help. Some people want to do things. But one thing that both of these teams have in common is I don't really think that we, any of us are truly sure how to fix the problem, at least wholly fix the problem. We can put a bandaid on it. We can give someone something to eat or a blanket, but is that solving the problem? And the answer is usually not really. There are people who dedicate their lives to helping the homeless. And I, for one, am incredibly grateful for those people. But 
an everyday citizen, what can we do? What can we do that's going to be productive and not just a temporary fix? And also, how do we remain safe when doing so? So let's get into it. Today, I got my resource information from snopes.com, eugenicsarchive.ca, and timeline.com. Yep. Oh, and also brc.org. Okay. Let's get into it. Chicago, to name one city that enacted an ugly law, didn't repeal its ordinance banning people deemed diseased, quote, diseased, maimed, mutilated, or in any other way deformed from public spaces until 1974. During the 19th and 20th centuries, some U.S. cities enacted so-called ugly laws banning people deemed diseased, maimed, mutilated, or in any way, other way deformed so, so as to be an unsightly or disgusting object or improper person, end quote, from public spaces. In 1990, Congress passed and President George H.W. Bush, that's senior, signed into law the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA, which extended federal civil rights protections to people with mental or physical impairments. The ADA is one of America's most comprehensive pieces of civil rights legislation that prohibits discrimination and guarantees that people with disabilities have the same opportunities as everyone else to participate in the mainstream of American life, to enjoy employment opportunities, to purchase goods and services, and to participate in state and local government programs and services modeled after the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which prohibits discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, or national origin, and Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973, the ADA is a, quote, equal opportunity, end quote, law for people with disabilities. Aw, thanks. More than a quarter century on, and despite further work to be done, the ADA has so positively affected how people with disabilities are treated and perceived in America that the notion that laws once existed to keep physically and cognitively challenged people indoors and out of sight seems scarcely believable. Does it though? Does it? Anyway. But it was the case, and not so long ago. Beginning in the late 80s, 1800s, (laughs) statues known as unsightly beggar ordinances, a.k.a. ugly laws, were enacted in some American cities to rid public spaces of what Chicago alderman James Peavy euphemistically referred to as street obstructions. (laughs) Oh, man. By street obstructions, PV didn't mean food carts, construction materials, roadblocks, or potholes. He meant beggars, such as the ones described in the Tribune as the one-legged individual who, with drooping eye and painfully, oh, this is a word, 
lugubrious countenance. Hmm, interesting. Holds forth his hat for pennies or the fellows who yell bananas. I swear it says that. The, f- <laughs> the fellow who yells bananas and the woman with two sick children who was drawn through the carding machine in a woolen mill and who grinds Molly Darling incessantly on a hurdy-gurdy on a street corner. I can't make it up if I tried. Okay. Well, I mean, I'm thinking that that he saw some specific people. That sounds quite specific, if you ask me. But anyway, that's what he used. Following the example of San Francisco, which had pioneered the legislation of 1867, Peavy helped pass a law in 1881 imposing fines or stints in the poorhouse, because that was a thing too, by the way, the poorhouse. It's like poor people jail. It wasn't like criminal jail per se, but it was like a special jail just for the unseemlies and the, uh, the, the poor, you know. They had a special place and they had the nerve to call it the poor house. I mean, you know, they had the absolute goal to call it the, the poor house because since you're poor, you go to the poor house is what you do. You know, they still use that figure of speech. Some people, they say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm broke. I'm going to wind up in the poor house or if they're, you know, gambling, they're losing money. I'm going to go straight to the poor house. People say that still to this day, maybe not young people, but people say it nonetheless. Ooh, oh my goodness. Anyway, these people were all who were diseased, maimed, mutilated, or in any way deformed so as to be unsightly or disgusting object, object, mind you, yet dared beg, panhandle, or otherwise make nuisances of themselves in public. Among other cities, Omaha, Columbus, Cleveland, and Portland, Oregon followed suit, all passing ugly laws using virtually identical language. In a discussion of Susan M. Schweck's The Ugly Laws, Disability in Public, uh, put out in 2009, reviewer Shannon Summer encapsulates the social and economic developments leading up to these measures. Schwick discussed in detail several factors which combined to create the perfect storm for the emergence of ugly law in America at this time. These include the formation of charity organization societies, the rise or eugenics and state institutions, an increasing focus on using urban planning to create beautiful cities, Increasing immigration at that time when there were few restrictions placed on immigration, the large number of soldiers injured in the Civil War, which had ended just a few years earlier, temperance and prohibition, and increasing industrialization of society with resulting industrial-related injuries. Now, this is interesting because specifically what I'm getting from this is uh injured war vets uh nothing for you sir um immigrants absolutely not um wait i lost my place oh yes um oh yes industrial and people who had uh, the, the disabled from work from working in industrial 
you know, buildings who got injured. No, none for you as well. Um, back of the line for you also. So, and also anyone, because of the temperance movement, anyone who is considered um, a substance abuser, specifically alcohol, uh, none for you as well. So people who seemed to need the most help were the ones that were stamped with this ugly law and we don't want to see you, we don't want you around, out you go. No services, no help for you. And it's interesting because it wasn't even a case where in today's world, because of you know, biases and prejudices will say, oh, a homeless person, they're probably an alcoholic. They're probably a drug addict. They, you know, they made them, they made mistakes themselves and that they deserve what they get kind of thing, because I've heard people say those things. Um, not my opinion at all, but it's been said. And that is not even the case for half the people on this list. Not even the case. People who were injured, people who were born, um, disabled, just all kinds of other things. And just plain old, just plain old immigrants. They could be in complete perfect health, but you just don't want to see them. So therefore they get, they get slapped with that law too. Man. And I would love to say that we've improved. I would, you know, I would love to say that, but I don't, I don't I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure that that's true. Anyway, Schwick notes that through the passage of new ugly laws ceased by the beginning of World War I and enforcement of existing statutes dwindled thereafter, they remained on the books until well into the latter half of the 20th century. Schwick found that one last known arrest under an ugly law occurred in Omaha, Nebraska in 1974 when a policeman wanted to arrest a homeless man but had no basis for arrest. After searching the city code and finding that Omaha's ugly law was still on the books, he was able to take the man into custody on the basis that the man had marks and scars on his body. Mm-mm-mm. Prosecutors refused to press charges on this case. Good. Schwick recounts one prosecutor pointing out that the criminal prosecution under this law would require the impossible. Courtroom proof that someone is ugly, quote unquote. That same year, 1974, saw the demise of ugly laws in America. The last city to repeal was Chicago. And one of the aldermen responsible for killing the law, Paul T. Wagoda, denounced it as cruel and insensitive and a throwback to the Middle Ages. It had been in effect for 93 years. Although the moniker ugly law was coined to refer collectively to such ordinances only in 1975, Bergdorf and Bergdorf 1975, it has become the primary way to refer to such laws, which targeted the overlapping categories of the poor, homeless, vagrants, and those with visible disabilities, enacted and actively enforced between the American Civil War and World War I. Such laws and their enforcement can tell us much about this very sort of people who were also a generation later subject to explicitly eugenic laws such as sterilization legislation. And like eugenic laws and policies, such laws continue to affect the lives of people with disabilities to this day. The first of these laws was introduced by the city of San Francisco on July 9th, 1867. 
order number 783 to prohibit street begging and to restrain certain persons from appearing in streets and public places. As the name of the ordinance suggests, ugly laws were concerned with more than appearance, prohibiting both the activity of street begging and the appearance in public of certain persons, quote unquote, certain persons. The phrasing that one finds in the city, in the Chicago city code in 1881 originates in the San Francisco law, the reference with that law to deformity, unsightliness and being a disgusting object is common across comparable ordinances in New Orleans, Portland, Oregon, Denver, Lincoln, Columbus, Omaha, New York. We covered some of these Manila under U.S. jurisdiction and Reno. The state of Pennsylvania was the only non-municipal jurisdiction to enact a comparable law in 1891. Oh, Pennsylvania. The most obvious function of such laws was to discourage people with visible disabilities from quote unquote hanging out in public urban spaces, asking people for money and to provide a legal basis for removing them from such spaces. But the wording and the enforcement of these laws, like that of eugenic sterilization and marriage and immigration restriction laws, reveal much more at work than perhaps indicated by this function. Just as as the most obvious function of eugenic sterilization laws. Um, wait, I lost my place. <laughs> oh yes. To prevent certain sorts of people from both producing and parenting children. That's the thing is accompanied by a range of conceptions of those people and mechanisms for interviewing, intervening in their lives in far in more far reaching ways was too with so-called ugly laws. Consider three parallels and contrasts between these sets of laws. Please forgive my reading today. My reading is, I'm hyped. I'm hyped. So I'm gonna, that's when I get tongue-tied. So please forgive me. Anyway, first, even though disability is the sole preoccupation in neither legislation domain, it is explicit in and central to both. In the early ugly laws, this is primarily in terms of certain persons being disease-ridden and physically deformed. In the later sterilization legislation, disability is explicit primarily as feeble-mindedness and mental deficiency or defectiveness. At the same time, though, this explicit focus locates the central targets of the legislation against a background that encourages a much broader set of targets. I'll give you a guess. Have you, you got it in your head? Okay, here's the answer. The poor, the criminal, and the homeless. Of course. Second, the emphasis in the ugly laws on visible disability and behavior that disturbed present urban social order contrasted with that in eugenic sterilization laws on less visible disabilities that threatened future social order. My goodness. That later threat was to the health and well-being of future generations, sometimes construed as a threat to, oh, here we go. Here it is. I was waiting for it. Quote, racial purity, end quote. 
A threat taken to justify extreme forces, forms of intervention on the lives and bodies of certain persons. I wonder who those certain persons are. Huh. Guess we'll never know. Third, this contrast corresponds to two distinct dimensions to the construction of disability. As reflected in the attention given to unsightly and disgusting objects in the ugly laws, one dimension concerns the visceral effects on a viewing public. And as reflected in the focus of subnormality, especially psychological subnormality in eugenics legislation, another dimension concerns the inferiority of certain sorts of people relative to others. Now, where is this yardstick? I want to know. Where is this yardstick where, that we're using? Where we get that? <laughs> it may be worth reflecting further on the relationship between such discussed reactions and perceived subhuman status, especially in the context of understanding contemporary forms of eugenics. Here, the burgeoning literature on dehumanization may be of help. Given the history of the term ugly laws, there is a sense in which there were no ugly laws, but mapping out the history of words and deeds might tell us something about the present and the future of disability and its ongoing entanglement with broader social issues. Sometime around 1916, a woman known as Mother Hastings was told by authorities in Portland, Oregon, that she was, quote, too terrible a sight for children to see, end quote. <laughs> oh, man. She says, they met my crippled hands, I guess, she told a reporter. They gave me money to get out of town. As in the Los Angeles Times, 1917. Mother Hastings complied. She moved to Los Angeles. Uh, I don't know. It, okay. Just, <laughs> I don't know if that would have been my choice, but Okay. She moved to Los Angeles just as the city's leaders were discussing enacting a version of the city ordinance that had restricted her access to urban spaces in Portland. These laws closed city spaces across the United States to people we would now call disabled. Through variants of the words with which we began, no person who is diseased, maimed, mutilated. I do not want to keep repeating that because that irks me every single time. Y'all remember it. Anyway, they said, uh, let me skip past that garbage. Um, so they said an improper person, we're just going to use that, to be allowed in or on public ways or other public places in the city or shall therein or thereon expose himself to public view. These ordinances were panhandling laws at their core. Unsightliness was a status offense, illegal only for people without means. Of course it was. Though fitfully enforced, the laws had profound consequences for people like Mother Hastings. Now, let's let's talk about it for a second, shall we? Because here's the thing. Aside from homelessness in and of itself, let's talk about this for a second because we know just even in today's world right now, looks mean things looks mean things societally speaking they mean things 
if you want to get promoted, you suddenly start wearing more mascara, you start doing certain things with your hair. There's these rules, these spoken and unspoken rules. There are still many, many a handbook, an employee handbook to this day that say you have to do certain things in order to be accepted at that place of business. And I'm not just talking about wearing a uniform. I'm talking about how they insist that you wear makeup or foundation, how they insist that you have earrings on and they tell you how many to wear. They tell you your hair and they use, sometimes they use very obscure things like your hair must be in a professional style, but what's the professional style, right? What is it? You know, sometimes they say they're more specific and they say that your hair needs to be a certain color. It has to be a natural quote unquote color can't be, you know, a technicolor. It has to be like a, a, a hair color that comes out in nature. I've seen that quoted before. So, but I feel like all of those things are a way to narrow the field, to have a certain kind of employee visually that they want to see. Now, is that okay? Like as, as someone who owns a business, is it all right to tell people how you want them to look? Maybe. But how far does it go? How far does it go? Because I mean, yeah, I might want someone to wear a beauty reform school t-shirt, but then do I go past that? Do I have certain other rules about how I want them to groom themselves or how to look? Hmm. I think that's one of those kind of things that you have to sit with, with yourself as someone who is an, if you're an employee, you have to sit with yourself and decide what kind of employer you'd like to be. Um, yeah, plainly put, I can't put it no better than that. Um, but you also have to search your heart and f ask yourself why you're making these rules. If it's just that you want to see everybody in the same outfit, that's, that's one thing. But if you start nitpicking about, um, the way people look or their features, um, then you have to ask yourself why. And I will say this as well. Um, when it comes down to something, let's use this one for an example. If it comes down to something where you say that you have, that your employees all must have a quote unquote professional hairstyle, you really have to be able to do your research and your due diligence and decide what a quote unquote professional hairstyle is. Who's to say what a professional hairstyle is to begin with anyway? Because professional for whom? Different people have different hair textures, different hair, their hair does different things. What are you talking about exactly? You have to know these things. If you're going to put that in your um, handbook, you have to know what you're talking about. And if you're questioned about it, you have to be able to provide a feasible answer, not just a, a shut up answer, like a real live answer. So that's food for thought right there. Ooh, the tea is hot. All right. Disability activists use the story of the ugly law as a cry and demand for inclusion in a truly open city. For this reason, it is particularly ironic that a city that city leaders in Portland, Oregon, have recently seized upon the Americans with Disabilities Act as a ruse for foreclosing beggars and closing off public spaces to street people. A few years ago, Portland's mayor, Sam Adams, announced a new sidewalk management plan 
creating a pedestrian use zone justified by its basis in the Federal American with Disabilities Act, drawing on provisions in that act for specific design guidelines that disabled citizens need for unobstructed passage on public sidewalks. In Portland, the ADA intended to be the legal end of the ugly law that closed the city to Mother Hastings was now being cynically twisted in a terrible but familiar irony precisely against people exactly like her. Now, this is where I run into some problems. All of this is trash, right? It's all, it sucks, all of it, every last bit of it. But then it, may, it poses the question, is it okay for people to sleep on the street that you have to step over them to get where you're going? Is that okay? Should you not be bothered by that? What can be done while maintaining their dignity and their respect and also making sure that they are okay? Um, it's not healthy to live out on the street. And I know that some people feel like they don't have any other options. Some people don't trust shelters. Some people, some of those organizations um, have given them some bad experiences, so they don't want to do it. Some people simply just want their freedom. They don't want a curfew. They don't want to have to do things um, a certain way. So they prefer not to be in a shelter. But then where does that leave them? That leaves them on the street. Now, aesthetically, do you want people laying all over the sidewalk while you're trying to walk by? Probably not. But what's the solution? And I would love to hear some of your thoughts on this. Um, I'd love you to write us at Facebook or at beautyreformschool.com or at Instagram. But as always, I would like you to be respectful. I know that this is a very highly emotional subject. Um, And if you're going to participate, please be respectful um, of each other. Please be respectful of the podcast and let's have an intelligent conversation if we are going to discuss it. Um, And if someone writes something that you don't agree with, uh, resist the urge to pounce, take a moment, breathe, think it through, maybe write out your response and reread it before you put, you enter it. Just give, give yourself a, give yourself a little grace and give each other a little grace with this subject. Because the truth is, I don't have the answers. All I've seen through the research I've done is simply that we've been going round and round on this subject for years. So I really, really would love to know more about it and to know and to try to get closer to how we can change things. Because clearly what we've been doing is not working. So what's a new way that we can do this and make it better? So, um, yeah, there's that. So please, your input is, uh, appreciated. For the crime of being unsightly, beggars could be charged anywhere from a dollar to $50 or up to about $1,100 in today's dollars. Those who weren't able to pay were sent to the poorhouses, as we talked about before. 
Um, in the 19th century, urban populations were ballooning, bringing many Americans into contact with people from all over the world and forcing everyday reckonings with radical, indif with radical difference. The first ugly law was implemented, as we know, San Francisco, we covered that. Um, heightened anxieties around begging reflected growing concerns about management of urban populations. The City Beautiful movement and urban reform philosophy based on the idea that cities should be aesthetically pristine as possible was at its peak at the same time that ugly laws were being passed. So it too was a response to the influx of immigrants, veterans, and newly freed slaves even in many American cities. And its ethos blended well with that of urban charitable organizations. Together, they sought to produce a particular kind of city environment, one purportedly devoted to its own betterment and beautification where the poor and other unfortunates could rely on some benevolent support. But the emphasis on beauty and benevolence belied the true effect and perhaps purpose of these initiatives, which was to define the ideal citizen, one who was white, able-bodied, English-speaking, and sufficiently independent. The law distinguished as decades of Victorian poor law in England had before between the worthy and unworthy poor, stipulating that different punishments would be metered out to criminals, drifters, the infirm, and the unsightly. Unsightly or unseemly beggars would be treated more lightly than criminals and taken not to jail, but to an almshouse or a poorhouse where they would be incarcerated for an indefinite, an indefinite, mind you, period of time. As Schwick points out, that was still a punitive sentence. As a result, these regulations meant to protect healthy, quote unquote, citizens from sensory discomfort which just means I don't want to look at it. Manipulation and danger mostly served simply to further marginalize and criminalize poverty and disability. Women may have borne the brunt of the ugly laws as gender norms of feminine appeal were particularly stringent. And since proper femininity was understood as inherently averse to public display, right Schwick, poor, deformed, or infirm women posed an especially dramatic challenge to the status quo. Columbus, Ohio, who had an ugly ordinance that included prohibition on lewd and lascivious behavior, indecent, immodest, or filthy acts, improper dress, that included cross-dressing, and quote-unquote prostitution, now known as sex work, including any lewd women who might make any bold display of herself. That could have been anything. That could have been anything from showing an ankle to showing more, or even the shade of her lipstick. The idea of the unsightly body is related to larger anxieties about the national body, specifically immigration. As Schweck points out, the peak years of the unsightly begging ordinance occurred at the same time as intensifying measures for exclusion of undesirable immigrants. Of course, Begging can be a form of theater and many saw immigrants as more practice in the art. The language of the laws suggests a particular distaste for the act of drawing attention to oneself, attracting the gaze of an innocent passerby. And <laughs> uh, 
When New Yorkers mounted a campaign to enact an ugly law at the turn of the 20th century, immigrants thought to represent a more professional and cunning class of beggars featured prominently in the rhetoric. And I will go so far as to say that could include anything from panhandling to actually being an artist, a musician, something like that, who was, but who were busking on the street, anything like that. And the worst part about it was the powers that be had the power to alter that rule to suit their taste. Just as they targeted immigrants, newly freed blacks were also disproportionately affected by the unsightly beggar ordinances. Schwick quotes from a paper by W. Michael Byrd and Linda A. Clayton in the 2003 Unequal Treatment Confronting Racial and Ethnic Disparities in Healthcare, who write, Black health plummeted due to the Civil War collapse of the slave health subsystem in lieu of emancipation. The war and its aftermath represented a health catastrophe for African-Americans as their health status fluctuated wildly until 1910. This led influential biostaticians as well as many in the medical profession to confidently predict black extinction by the year 2000. Wow. Well, it's 2021, so I mean... You know, so far, so good. It was the same mentality that governed the segregation of the railroad and so many other public spaces. And it meant that a great many black urban dwellers would fit into the categories specified in the ugly ordinances. Diseased, maimed, deformed, mutilated. Eventually, many of the ugly laws were dismantled. By the middle of the 20th century, few remained, but they were never abandoned in spirit. That's the whole point of this episode. They were supplanted by a spate of new laws designed to criminalize poverty and homelessness like those that ban sitting and lying in public spaces or those that prohibit people from sharing food with homeless individuals. And where they did persist, the ugly laws were used to penalize the poor in the 1960s and 70s. And the last time that the law was invoked was in 1974 when an Omaha police officer used it as a pretext We already talked about the marks and the scars. 1974, y'all. I know some of y'all were alive. So it wasn't that long ago. So when we talk, when we like to pat ourselves on the back and say how far we've come, remember that some of these laws were being enacted and in full, full, full effect when we were still alive. Thanks so much for hanging in there for this episode. I have news. We still have some more to discuss. However, we're going to take a break from the subject so we can digest it and think about it and discuss it. We're going to come back in a little in a little bit, maybe, I don't know, two, three weeks from now. And we're going to to wrap it up. And we're also going to mention some of the comments that were given when you all write in. So we're going to discuss some of those as well. And remember, respectful space, safe space. So we're going to be respectful. We're going to use grace with one another. If we don't, then I will just pass that comment by because we're not doing that. You can get, I believe that everyone can get their point across respectfully 
And if you're not able to do that, then you're going to have to try again another time. So I think that I think that you can do it. Um, in the meantime, on the blog, there is going to be um, a few links for what you can do uh, to be helpful to someone that is suffering um, from homelessness. Um, a couple resources, if you will. We'll have that. And um, yeah, because this is not going to be just a one and done, a fixer upper. We're going to be revisiting this subject from time to time. Um, I feel like a couple times a year we'll check back in with this and see if we've gotten anywhere, if there's some new resources. If someone gives me some resources to share, I definitely will be doing that. But at its core, when it comes to beauty, um, yeah, when it comes to beauty, homelessness, that subject is a very important one because I really think that it affects the way we see beauty a lot of the time. Um, it affects how we see ourselves. It affects how we see our cities. And it definitely affects how we see our fellow humans. So thank you so much for bearing through this episode because I know it wasn't always pleasant, but I love you for listening. I said it before and I'll say it again. Thank you so much for sticking through this episode. It's not an easy subject to listen to or even talk about, but it is important. Beauty is from the inside out. It really, really is. And it's not just about how we look. It's not just about how we feel, but it's about everything around us. It's hard to feel beautiful if everything around you feels ugly. And this is an ugly subject. I'm glad that the ugly laws have been taken down, but they're not, they're not disabled. They're still here. And we have a responsibility, not just to ourselves, but to those around us. And when we finally get, get a hold of that, and when we finally understand that, truly understand that, then the world will get a lot more beautiful. Now, as always, please send me your stories, send me people to talk to, and if you have any important information on homelessness or how to help homelessness or what you can do to be a part of the problem and not the solution, please write me. Always with love and grace. Thank you. If you don't know how to do that, I'll tell you one more time. You got your Facebook, Beauty Reform School. You got Instagram, Beauty Reform School, or you can go right to the source at beautyreformschool.com. And thank you so much for your listenership. And thank you in advance for your listenership in the future. And pencils down. Class is dismissed. And I'll see you next week.